From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Professor Marcia Langton holds the Foundation Chair of Australian Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne. Her academic specialties are anthropology and geography, and she's a prolific writer. Her latest book, titled Law, The Way of the Ancestors, co-authored with Aaron Korn, comes out later this month. Professor Langton has been a fighter for rights and progress for Indigenous Australians for decades, and she's one of those at the centre of the Yes campaign for The Voice. Her own voice is always forthright and formidable. She joins us today. Professor Langton, where do you think the referendum for The Voice stands at the moment? Are you confident or are you concerned about how the campaign is going? I'm not entirely confident, Michelle, but I'm um, feeling more positive than I have previously. Uh, I've been following the, um, the polls, of course, although polls can be terribly unreliable, as we know, but I've been gauging uh, the response of the general public by reading a lot and having a look at the social media. And I think most people can see that this is a very simple and modest proposition and that it will make a difference. And what I'm seeing more and more is most people realising, yes, well, why don't Indigenous people have a say about policies and laws that affect them? And they realise when they think about it that this has gone on for too long where, you know, all of these laws and policies that seem to be universally ineffective in closing the gap and and causing more suffering have been imposed on us by non-Indigenous people for far too long. I think most people are still very embarrassed about the Northern Territory intervention initiated by John Howard. So the Northern Territory Emergency Intervention involved sending the army into the Northern Territory on the basis of a great deal of media hysteria about child abuse. And, uh, you know, the evidence just wasn't there to justify the Northern Territory Emergency Intervention. So I think most people are still very embarrassed about that. And now we have... um, grey nomads travelling around the country and seeing at first hand the conditions in the communities. I was in the Kimberley recently and the grey nomads were bumper to bumper up that highway and the car parks were full of them. So they can see for themselves what the conditions are like and I, I doubt very much that the ideological view of the no case advocates will have much sway amongst the people who, you know, have got a moral compass, if you like. What difference do you think that Julian Lisa's decision to stand down as a opposition spokesman and campaign for the yes side will make? I think uh, Julian has shown, you know, integrity and decency of the kind that, you know, most Australians aspire to and... Uh, You know, you can see from the response that he's getting from across the political spectrum that he's now even more respected for his stance. Uh, Mind you, he is uh, proposing a 
something other than the present question in the Constitution alteration bill, and he wants to try to change that. So we'll see how he fares with that. I mean, I, I don't agree with him on that, but I do have a lot of respect for him in um, standing up for his principles. He's been involved for a very long time, as he says, um, over, well, about a decade now. And he was indeed involved in discussions with Indigenous leaders like Noel Pearson, and I was at, at, at least one of them, um, where he, you know, showed good faith in trying to find a solution to the impasse that we faced following the total rejection by Tony Abbott and Bill Shorten when Tony was Prime Minister and Bill Shorten was the opposition leader to the uh, expert panel report on constitutional recognition. So it was a, a real blow to everyone to have, you know, such a contemptuous dismissal of a great deal of work. And, and you know, I don't know if you remember the proposal then for a new Section 116A in the Constitution to ensure that the Commonwealth couldn't act against the best interests of Indigenous Australians. And this is what most people are coming to realise, that the Constitution, as it is now, permits the Commonwealth Government to cause us harm. It's a long story, and if you want me to explain, I can, but that's essentially the problem that we're dealing with. I just want to take up your point about Julian Lisa's concerns about the wording. There's not going to be any significant change in the wording, is the realistically... I think there's a general satisfaction by Indigenous leaders and certainly the government with the wording of the proposed change. I cannot uh, foresee any changes to the question. The question's very simple and straightforward. And, of course, it has uh, provisional material, um, you know, the three-part provisional material, um, and that has been checked and rechecked by the constitutional working group and also by other constitutional lawyers. And we, the members of the referendum working group, are satisfied that the greater majority of the constitutional experts are of the view that the question and the provisional material are constitutionally sound and, and, and the right question to put to the Australian voters. There have been various takes on how wide and detailed the voices' representations will be, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this. For example, we're now to have an ambassador for First Peoples who will prepare a First Nations foreign policy strategy. So would the voice get involved in this in future years? I... I uh, can't imagine why not, and I can envisage some issues that uh, The Voice uh, might take up with um, the Minister for Foreign Affairs and the Indigenous Ambassador. So, for instance, um, you know, one would be um, how to celebrate United Nations days, such as any of the celebratory days that the United Nations has, The you know, the um, International Day of Indigenous Peoples is, is one of them. And that would be a very good thing. But my point that has been widely misunderstood, especially by, you know, the right-wing media such as Sky News After Dark and so on, is that 
The voice will be a statutory body and like any other statutory body, it should be treated according to the, you know, the standards of non-discrimination. If no other statutory body is restricted on the basis of race or gender or age in making representations to government, then to restrict the voice in making such uh, representations could be seen as racially discriminatory. And the disability question comes into play. If no other statutory authority is uh, in any way limited in relation to its disability, that is, whether or not it could litigate or whether or not it could be the subject of litigation, then why should there be a limitation on the voice as a statutory body on the basis of race? That could also be seen as racially discriminatory. So, you know, the hysterical pundits think I'm personally calling them racists. You know, so for instance, Greg Craven is whining about how he's been called a racist. I was making a point, uh, well, the point I've just made to you, and he's incapable of seeing it. Well, that, you know, that that tells me that, you know, we're just as well to uh, ignore his advice because he is pretty much on his own on the Constitutional Working Party in his advice. He has said, to be fair to him, that he will vote yes despite his doubts. Well, I wish that he would be um, uh, fair and, and clear in his public comments because what he does constantly is muddy the waters. And I, I think really, you know, there's nothing more to most of his intent than showing off. You know, he's a bit of a show-off. We've, we've looked carefully at everybody's advice and, and I can say with confidence uh, that the majority advice, for example, from Kenneth Haynes and Toomey and others, is, is very reassuring. And of course, they publish their advice. Most of their advice has been published in newspapers and journals, and it's easy to read. Whereas you find with um, Greg Craven's work that it's difficult to understand the point that he's making. It, it diverges so much from the accepted constitutional view on the question and is concerned with, you know, extraneous matters such as his personal concerns that it's difficult to, you know, comprehend how, how to accommodate them. Um, so I, I do read what he says. I'm not persuaded by anything that he says, frankly. Let's turn to the design principles for The Voice. They say that the way members of The Voice will be chosen would suit the wishes of the local communities. Now, what are some of the ways in which they could be chosen? Would this vary from community to community? And what would you say to people who are concerned that there might not be democratic elections? Okay, very good question and, you know, often difficult for people to understand. So our um, Cal Melanchthon report, um, which is online uh, and easy to find, the Indigenous Voice Co-Design Final Report, is, is 270 pages long, but there are summaries of the recommendations throughout and particularly at pages 16 to 19. 
and it is not difficult to read, contrary to Warren Mundine's complaint in The Australian today. If, if you look at the summaries, you'll see that what we're driving at is that we have to accommodate an already existing Indigenous governance landscape. So across the country, we have an enormous number of existing bodies, none of which have any assured way of advising governments. None of them are provided with a formal way to advise governments. Uh, so an example, I'll give you two examples to be brief. One is the Torres Strait Regional Authority and the other is the ACT Indigenous Elected Assembly. Now, indeed, both of them can give advice to their state governments, and that's a good thing, but they don't sit in an integrated framework such as the one that we uh, recommend in our report, where they would be able to advise all levels of government and play a part in advising on laws and policies. Moreover, uh, they occurred by happenstance, if you like, not serendipitous, but, you know, rather accidental. And when we, we surveyed, in our interim report, we surveyed all such bodies uh, in Australia and internationally uh, to be sure that uh, we got a sense of what already exists and uh, we developed a set of principles for the creation of such bodies as uh, the Indigenous voice arrangements. And those principles are empowerment, inclusive participation, cultural leadership, community-led design, non-duplication and links with existing bodies, respectful long-term partnerships, transparency and accountability, capability-driven, data and evidence-based decision-making. So those are the principles and it was our preference that those principles be legislated so that each body that is created, should we be successful, complies with those principles. Now, there are two ways that these bodies come about. One is, uh, as in the case of the Torres Strait Regional Authority, by happenstance. So it was created as an outcome of the treaty negotiations with Papua New Guinea over the border. And so in order for you know, that part of the world to have some kind of local governance arrangement that was effective and worked, the government allowed the Torres Strait Regional Authority to emerge from the negotiations. In the case of the ACT Indigenous Elected Assembly, that, that like the Torres Strait Regional Authority, could be closed down at any time, as was ATSIC. And so neither of these bodies are secure. Now, when we look at other bodies, such as the Murdy Parkey Council in Western New South Wales uh, or Empowered Communities, they are driven by the community. They were initially entirely voluntary and they, they were efforts by people to create their own governance system because of the absence and, and frankly, incompetence of government. And there are these arrangements right across the country, but as I say, none of them formal. Now, some are legislated and formal, some are not legislated, but formal, and most of them are completely informal and have no guarantee of a future because as I say, they're largely driven by local volunteers. And that is the case across the indigenous governance landscape. And many of them arise out of customary arrangements, by which I mean cultural arrangements. 
So people develop their own representative systems based on their local cultures. And so, you know, it will be very dependent on, um, you know, the local culture, the local languages, how elders are, um, you know, recognised and so on. This is why we um, recognise cultural authority as, as one of the principles. But those customary arrangements, such as tribal councils and so on, are not always based on, say, human rights principles or, you know, human rights standards like gender equity. So that's why we have uh, inclusivity as one of our principles. And to that end, we recommended extra seats on the national voice for Torres Strait Islanders who live on the mainland. They are completely unrepresented. A permanent advisory body for Indigenous youth, they are completely unrepresented, but the majority of our population. And uh, people who live with disabilities. So we recommended a permanent advisory body of Indigenous people who live with disabilities because at least one in four of our people live with disabilities. And so this is what we mean by inclusivity. And uh, we also allowed, uh, recommended extra seats for people who live in remote areas um, on the National Voice because they are the most disadvantaged, the most poverty-stricken and are the least able to access government services and the least able to have their voice heard. So we weighted the national voice in their favour. Um, and so this is what we mean by allowing for uh, self-determination and uh, local input to the development of the regional voice arrangements. And that would involve determining the boundaries, how, how to arrive at the, uh, the membership. Uh, that could be by uh, meetings. It could be by a vote. Uh, for example, uh, the Tasmanian representatives insisted that they would want a statewide election for their voice. And of course, in the ACT, it's obvious that you'd have to have a statewide election because the majority of Indigenous people living in the ACT come from elsewhere and the traditional owners are in the minority. But again, that is why, you know, cultural leadership is one of our principles because we don't want the traditional owners to be underrepresented or voiceless if they are in an area where the majority of Indigenous people are not from the local area. And how important do you regard it to be that uh, women are fully represented on this body? Uh, our recommendation is very clear in relation to the national voice. There must be gender equity. Of course, we want gender equity in all the regional voice arrangements. And, and if our principles were legislated, then you know a case would have to be put uh, for each regional voice to be recognised formally as to why they were not able to achieve gender equity. The ideal is gender equity. There's been much discussion of whether the voice will in fact deliver practical outcomes. You obviously believe it will. Can you give some specific areas where you think it could make a significant difference? Uh, well, let me just uh, point to a few big picture problems uh, that you know, that we face as Indigenous people. People say, oh, but you have 11 
uh, representatives in Parliament. At the next election, we might have none. Who knows? That's not the point. And they represent their electorates, not Indigenous people specifically. They might be Indigenous, but they don't represent Indigenous people with respect to their position in uh, the House or the Senate. They represent their electorates. And most of them are bound by party policy. And so they're not able to reflect the Indigenous view if it departs from a party view. And that is, you know, let's face it, for the last 10 years, that's been the case. There's been very little alignment between Indigenous views and government policy. I'm having trouble thinking of one at the moment. But as for the kinds of problems that The Voice would be able to uh, tackle much more effectively than governments, I give you the case of the COVID-19 pandemic. The first people to respond effectively long before governments did so were the Indigenous health organisations. And Fiona Stanley and I and others have written about this in a case study uh, that is published in a refereed journal. It's also available online in a very accessible journal. Um, so what happened was that because the Indigenous uh, community-controlled health sector leaders had dealt with two epidemics um, in recent history, and one in particular had a very high mortality rate. And so in response to that, the Indigenous health sector wrote an epidemic plan, and that was about 10 years old, but it was easily revised to become the pandemic plan, so they went straight into action when we began to hear the news from overseas about COVID-19. So, you know, who was first to close their borders? Not the states and territories. It was the Aboriginal landowners on advice from the, the Indigenous health sector that closed their borders to stop travel to, you know, in and out of Aboriginal lands to keep their populations safe because the most vulnerable populations to um, COVID-19 were the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations with pre-existing health burdens, such as uh, chronic diseases, diabetes, kidney disease, and so on. And, and, and we expected uh, you know, an enormous death toll in the Indigenous community. I'm trying to find the figures. So, we expected at least 3% of the Indigenous population to contract the disease. So 27,701 cases was the prediction. But because the Indigenous health sector rushed to implement the, the pandemic plan and set up a national task force with public health advisories that went out to across our media sector, um, translated into at least 18 languages, uh, we were able to stop the deaths. And so in the first year of the pandemic, I think we had one death as opposed to 27,000. And uh, then uh, the government dropped the ball and there were uh, some deaths, but nothing like, you know, the epidemiological predictions that were made. And so we did, we were the most successful group in the world, I would argue, um, in preventing COVID-19 from taking lives. 
So up until January 2021, there were only 148 cases of COVID among Indigenous people nationwide, 15% hospitalisations, one case in ICU and no deaths. And there were no deaths in remote communities and no cases associated with the Black Lives Matter marches because of our public health advisories. So I think that's, you know, a very good example of why Indigenous people in control of their own affairs is uh, much more effective than governments. And, and we can see the terrible mistakes that governments across the country made, even though they were advised by, you know, the very best of our um, epidemiologists, is because they don't have the reach into the local population that our Indigenous health sector has. But this is the case across several fields. We know about the housing and overcrowding and how that is, you know, a fundamental social determinant of not just poor health outcomes, but employment outcomes, education outcomes, mental health outcomes, and, you know, general living standards. The governments have no idea of how to solve the problem. They are far too slow to solve the problem. If we had greater Indigenous uh, representation on these matters, and, you know, as our principals point out, data-based evidence, not, you know, a while, you know, a, a bureaucrat in Canberra pointing a finger, then we would, I think, solve these problems much more quickly. And, and that's been proven to be the case many times over, and I could give you other case studies. So it is absolutely not the case, as the no-case advocates, particularly Jacinta Price, Lydia Thorpe and Warren Mundine, say that this would be a waste of money. Uh, to the contrary, it would save money, but more importantly, it would save lives. It would not result in, as Peter Dutton claims, millions of dollars wasted in additional bureaucracy. No, we're asking for Indigenous people to have a say. And the point is, of course, as you well know, bureaucrats serve their ministers. Bureaucrats do not serve the Australian public and especially they do not serve the interests of Indigenous Australians. And so we are proposing a non-bureaucratic solution to what has essentially become a bureaucratically imposed, you know, death knell for Indigenous Australians. If we keep going uh, the way we are at the moment, the social indicators tell us that they'll, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, their cultures, but you know, particularly their populations, will not survive the general incompetence of governments in dealing with these issues. Just finally, you were very emotional when recently you stood with the Prime Minister for the announcement of the Voices wording. What does the voice mean to you personally? I was uh, emotional on that day because... Uh, our dear friend and member of our referendum working group, Dr Yunapingu, had been taken home from hospital and we knew that he was not long for this world and he was a highly valued member of the referendum working group because it was he who had initiated one of the most important discussions on constitutional recognition. And uh, both he and Noel Pearson have... have spoke about this. And of course, Noel was not there either. 
and he was a, a key architect of, of this. So they spoke many years ago. I was there and it was very clear to Noel that what Dr Yunapingu was saying was that the present arrangements posed an existential threat to the Yolngu people and Dr Yunapingu was at great pains to ensure a, a, a future in which his Yolngu people could thrive. Noel immediately understood this because in many respects he feels the same way about the peoples of Cape York, which is why he set up the Cape York Land Council, the Cape York Institute, Cape York Partnerships, Good to Great Schools and so many other initiatives. And again, you know, both of these leaders had driven a, you know, basically a survival strategy based on local decision-making and local involvement. And they would not be able to sustain uh, these very uh, difficult projects without some security against the whims of governments and elections. So I was very upset that neither of them were there, but also I think hugely relieved that this government under Prime Minister Albanese has taken the reins of the horse and decided now is the right time. So I don't think many people are aware that the first recommendation for constitutional recognition from Indigenous leaders that I'm aware of uh, was presented to John Howard in 2000 in the Corroboree 2000 report. So Patrick Dodson, now Senator Patrick Dodson, was the co-chair of the Aboriginal Reconciliation Council, which had a 10-year life under its statute and was required to report to government and in its 10th year did so. And one of the recommendations was a, an examination of the constitutional recognition issues. And for 30 years then, more than 30 years, the desire of Indigenous people to be recognised in the constitution and to be given uh, security against the, uh, the whims of, of governments and, and elections, all of these aspirations have been ignored repeatedly and I said that day when Prime Minister Albanese made his announcement that we're drawing a line in the sand, by which I mean it's so important that Indigenous people have a say in their own affairs and that we're not, you know, the punching bags for politicians and the media every time they want to generate an hysterical anti-Aboriginal campaign as so many are doing now. Marcia Langton, thank you very much for joining us today. And that's all from this Conversation Politics podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.